We never want to underestimate the love of God and the giving of His Word. And what a privilege it is for us to come together and humble ourselves before the teaching of His Word. Will you take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And in a moment, I'm going to read verses 9 through chapter 22, verse 5. This will be the beginning of probably a, at least a two, maybe a three-part series on heaven's holy city, our future home. But again, bear in mind that we come to the book of Revelation, which is our Lord's amazing revealing of himself in all of his glory. The revelation of those things that will transpire at the end of the age, the time in which I believe we're living right now. In chapter 1 and verse 19, the Lord himself has outlined this book for us. You will recall he speaks of, first of all, the things which you have seen. John is to write about them. And in chapter 1, we have a vision of the glorified Christ. And then secondly, he wants him to write about the things which are. And in chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven letters to prominent churches that are representative of all churches down through history. And then thirdly, he wants him to write about the things which shall take place after these things. That is, after the church has been translated into heaven, at the great rapture of the church, then Daniel's 70th week or the seven years of tribulation will be poured out upon the earth. And in chapters 4 all the way through 22, you read about these final things. We studied them, the seven seal, trumpet and bowl judgments, the details regarding the rise and the fall of the Antichrist and the false prophet and uh, that global empire and false religious system that will one day uh, consume the earth, the protection and redemption of Israel, uh, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial reign, and then the eternal state where we will dwell in the presence of God forever and ever in a new creation and the new Jerusalem. That is detailed in our text this morning. I've heard some of you speak with me and you say, Pastor, I cannot wait to get to heaven and to see these things. And I agree, I can't wait either. And I might add that we may not have to wait much longer. Before I open up the word to you, I wanted to draw your attention to how exceedingly close, I believe, along with many others, that we are to the unfolding of these staggering events. According to Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39, sometime just prior to the Lord's return, we are told that a vast Russian and Arab alliance of nations will attack Israel from the north. But they will be miraculously defeated, they will be decimated on the mountains of Israel. In Ezekiel 39, verse 5, we read, You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. And I shall send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety. And they will know that I am the Lord. 
And my holy name I shall make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I shall not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. That day, dear friends, could be very soon. I was listening to a former United States Major General Paul Vallely, who said, and I quote, the summer of 2010 will be the tipping point in the whole world, end quote. He is convinced, along with many others, that the Iranians already have nuclear capability. We know, according to his report and others, that the Iranians are arming Hezbollah in Syria and in Lebanon. He believes, as others do, that they are going to try a preemptive strike on Israel before Israel has a preemptive strike on Iran. According to his report, there is a Russian sub currently in Uh, or I should say right off the coast of Lebanon. It is disguised with an Iranian flag, and the offloaders are wearing gas masks and full hazmat gear, indicating that what they are offloading is probably some form of biochemical type of armaments. There are Scud missiles that are currently being delivered from Syria to southern Lebanon, They are now being placed in houses in southern Lebanon, able to pop up and shoot out of roofs, placed in orchards and other places. And these are capable of delivering chemical weapons. In the last 30 days, the Israeli Defense Force has distributed chemical kits to the people of Israel. They know that there are tunnels coming in from Lebanon into Israel The Revolutionary Guard from Iran is very rapidly training Hezbollah soldiers in southern Lebanon. And as I speak, there is a complete Internet lockdown in Lebanon regarding many of these things. In addition to all of this, if you've been looking at the news at all, you can identify with what the Israelis are going through at some level with the Turks bringing in a flotilla of so-called aid, trying to break the blockade that Israel has from anyone bringing in other arms into Gaza and ultimately up to the North Bank. Israelis have dolphin submarines that are patrolling their coastlines offshore. These are equipped with cruise missiles, equipped with nuclear warheads. And we know that they have stationed three of these submarines in the Red Sea, and they are saying that they will always keep at least one of them off of the Iranian coast, operating at all times. So the whole Middle East is a tinderbox ready to explode. An announcement was made last week from the Rabbinical Council of Judea and Samaria. And this was reported by the Israeli National News. And it said that a council of rabbis in Israel says their nation's conflict with Turkey 
over a flotilla of, quote, aid ships headed for the blockaded Gaza Strip controlled by the terrorist Hamas organization just may be the beginning of the, quote, Gog and Magog process where the world is against us, but which ends with the third and final redemption, end quote. And according to Jewish eschatology, even though it is distorted at some level, what they're looking for is the return of the Messiah and the glorious kingdom. They do not understand that he has already come once, but that now he's coming the second time. Of course, our government leaders are utterly clueless to these things, as are most of the leaders around the world. And not surprisingly, we see the Obama administration being more sympathetic to the forces of Islam who are trying to establish a global caliphate than being sympathetic to our Israeli allies. But, beloved, this is all part of God's plan. The constellation of signs, of prophetic signs, all point to a battle, probably the battle of Gog and Magog that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There has always been much debate as to the timing of these events. As I have gone into in great detail, I believe, as do others, that before the battle of Gog and Magog, the rapture of the church will take place. And that, of course, will decimate the United States. It will leave Israel completely defenseless. At that time, I believe that these forces will attack And, of course, we know God will destroy them, and out of that will rise the Antichrist who will establish his peace treaty with Israel, and that will inaugurate the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. Our enemies already recognize the weakness of the United States. Our economy is crumbling all around the world. If you read what others say, they admit that Our leadership is utterly incompetent. I was reading some research this last week, and I learned that our national debt has now hit $13 trillion. And what's even more alarming, according to a president of the Federal Reserve, they indicate that the real debt figure is about $104 trillion. $104 trillion. If you count all our entitlement programs, including Social Security and Medicare and obligations, including federal pensions. Since 2008, we've seen a startling 135% increase in the money supply. And this drastic inflation of our dollar will eventually cripple the wealth of America because it will ultimately evolve into price inflation that we will all experience when we buy groceries, when we buy any other goods and services, gas, and so forth. Today, even our enemies are appalled at our rampant spending, our overzealous borrowing, and what many believe to be a planned devaluing of the dollar, which is taking us to the brink of collapse And, of course, the solution that is being proposed is to tax our way out of it. And if you study what is going to happen in December 31st, you will see that our government will impose upon us the greatest tax increase in the history of the world. Dear Christian, all I have to say is you better wake up. 
You better loosen your grip on the things of the world. We don't know when the Lord is coming, but unless you're absolutely blind and live in a cave someplace, you have to realize that these things are coming together rapidly. Our world is being prepared for the rule of the Antichrist. Israel is surrounded by enemies. They are still in their unbelief. And the United States is staggering around like a drunk in a state of euphoria, thinking everything is wonderful. Everything is well. So let's keep drinking some more. And eventually, and I believe very soon, the United States of America, like a foolish drunk, is going to pass out and fall face down in its own vomit. How sad to see so many Christians today, so many Christians today, indifferent to these things. Like, like the first century Pharisees and Sadducees, whom Jesus condemned for their inability to discern the times in which they lived. He said, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky? He asked them, referring to their ability to basically predict the weather. But he went on to say, but you cannot discern the signs of the times in Matthew 16. You know how to read the weather, but you don't realize all of the Old Testament prophecies. And now the kingdom is before you. Your Messiah is here. You're indifferent to all of that. Jesus called them blind guides leading the blind. That's how many of us are today. The disciples in Matthew 24 asked Jesus about the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. And in summary, he said, before I return, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, referring to their phony love for Christ. Beloved, is this not a picture of the world in which we live today? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. All you need to do is turn on your television and you're going to see the doctrines of demons. Go to your Christian bookstore and you can read on bestseller lists, doctrines of demons. Scripture indicates that the season of the very end of human history will be characterized by a world that is obsessed for peace. A world that is moving rapidly towards a one-world government that wants a one-world economic system, that even is passionate about some kind of a one-world ecumenical religious system that will put down all of the rivals, that will somehow do away with all of the things that separate us so that we can all be one big happy people of faith. Is that not what is happening today? Like we have never seen it before. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 31, God predicts that just prior to the Lord's return, He would restore His chosen people to their land, the land that they had been promised. And we've seen that happen back in 1948 when Israel came back to her land. And now she still exists despite unbelievable odds against her. 
And then, of course, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we read about these hostile nations that are going to attack Israel from the north. And we see that set out before us today that could happen at any time. Beloved, Jesus is coming soon to snatch away his bridal church and finalize his judgment upon the nations and his covenant people Israel and ultimately reconcile a remnant of them back into himself. He's going to renovate the earth as we've studied. He's going to establish a glorious millennial kingdom. He's going to judge the unbelieving dead. Then he's going to uncreate the heavens and the earth and create a new heaven and a new earth. And then beyond the remotest regions of our universe, in the third heaven of God's abode, there will descend the crown jewel of heaven, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, a mammoth holy of holies that will contain the glory of the Lord. And in Revelation 21, in verse 2, we are told that this holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This will be our home. And in verses 9 all the way through chapter 22 and verse 5, we have amazing details of this future home, this new Jerusalem. So let me read this passage of Scripture to you, beginning in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, fifteen hundred miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, seventy-two yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh Chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God shall illumine them. And they shall reign forever and ever. <coughs> your Christian, hang on. Fasten your seatbelts. Because we are about to go on the most magnificent, breathtaking, and I love this word, awesome journey that you could possibly imagine. You know, when we go on a vacation, what, we, what do we do before we go? Well, we determine our destination, where we're going to go. And we want to see the accommodations. And now we get on the Internet and we have these virtual tours and we can pick out the rooms and all of the things that we want to do. And, and of course, also the recreation. We're going to determine all of those things. And even more so if we are planning to move to another state. Beloved, this is going to be the ultimate destination when we go to heaven. Better yet, may I add, this is going to be home. Not a home where it will take us a while to kind of get used to it and to really feel at home. No, this will be a place that when you get there, you will experience something that causes you and me to say, this is home. I've never experienced anything like this. Every aspect of our being will be completely and perfectly satisfied. Unlike anything we've ever experienced. In 1 Peter 1, you will recall, Peter addressed his letter to those who reside as aliens. I love that, as aliens. Don't you feel like an alien in this world? And this referred to more than people that are living in foreign lands, that are exiles in foreign lands. But those whose true citizenship is in heaven. Those of us who are just sojourners. On this earth, one day, beloved, we're going to finally be home. Today, we are like Abraham, who, according to Hebrews eleven nine, lived by faith as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. And in verse 10, it says that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And later, in verse 16, this longing for a heavenly home is expanded to include even his wife Sarah and all of the saints who, in verse 16, desire a better country. 
that is a heavenly one. Isn't that what you desire? I desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. It goes on to say, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And in chapter 13, verse 14, we read, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And also in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, there is a brief description. It's called the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. So here in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9 through chapter 22 and verse 5, the Lord is so gracious to us because he knew that we would be curious about our eternal home. Imagine if we didn't have any of this in, in holy writ, if we had no clue what awaited us. And even now, with what he's revealed to us, we just have a glimpse Because it's going to be so far beyond what we could ever imagine. But in order for us to have some grasp of at least the elementary essence of our future home, he describes it to us in what I believe are three categories. And we will look at some of them this morning. Number one, we're going to see the splendor of its appearance. Number two, the symmetry of its architecture. And thirdly, the stateliness of its accommodation. So let's look together at this holy city that the Lord has prepared for us. Number one, the splendor of its appearance. Verse nine. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, come here. I shall show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, throughout John's vision, the Lord has used various angels to reveal certain events and to fulfill certain judgments upon the world. And it would appear here now that John recognizes this angel. I believe from this passage and others that we will actually be able to recognize angels in glory, that we will be able to know them distinctly, probably by name, each one having its own identity. And this one is probably one of the angels That spoke to him in chapter 17, verse 1, regarding the harlot of religious Babylon. You remember there, the angel said, come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. But here we have a stark contrast from that. A contrast between that wicked and defeated system versus the holy city. The difference between Babylon, the great of chapter 18, and the new Jerusalem. So now this angel summons John on the Lord's behalf and invites him to come with him on a tour that is absolutely mind-boggling. Verse 9 at the end, he says, come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, why would he call the bride the city or the city the bride? Well, because it contains those who have been united to God by Christ through faith. You see, this is the home of the redeemed of the people down through the ages, the glorified, sanctified saints. This is now, as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The church that is blameless and holy. And again, what a contrast. The capital city of Satan's world system was called a harlot. 
But the capital city of God's heaven is spotless, holy, blameless, a bride, the wife of the Lamb. Because according to chapter 19 and verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Isn't this magnificent imagery? What a wonderful hope that it gives to all of us who love Christ. And beloved, here we are reminded again of the relational intimacy that we have with the lover of our souls. We are his bride. And someday we are going to dwell with him in unobstructed glory and behold him face to face. It goes on, verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, here John is once again transported in some supernatural state of ecstasy, some state of prophetic trance that is beyond the realm of human experience, certainly nothing like we've experienced. It would have been what Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians 12 when he was taken into the third heaven. But I want you to notice that John here now is taken to a great and high mountain. And and here we have yet another contrast to his previous experience in chapter 17, where he was transported not to a great and high mountain, but to the wilderness to behold the religious Babylon. Chapter 17, verse 3, the woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. So now from this supernatural vantage point, John has an unobstructed view to be able to hold to behold the the bridal city. And here's where it really gets interesting. And I might add, this is as close as we can get to a Internet virtual tour of a city. Here's where we get a virtual tour through the revelation of the word of God of our future home. A place from which we will come and go and traverse the universe to do God's bidding. So the the angel guide here now is going to show him. The appearance of the city, its structures, dimensions, materials of its construction and so forth, all of which I've summarized under the heading, the splendor of its appearance. Now, before we look at these details, I want to jump ahead of the word just a little bit here and remind you of the dimensions of the city so that you will have some perspective. According to verse 16, it's 1,500 miles in a cube. Someone has done the math. That's 2,250,000 square miles. That's a big city. Imagine a city as big as from the tip of Florida to the tip of Maine and as wide as San Francisco over to Kansas City, Missouri in a cube. It's a big city. We're going to get into more of the dimensions of that and an estimate of how much room we will all have the next time we get together. But in verse 10, we see that John sees it coming down out of heaven from God. And verse 11 says, having the glory of God. This must have been absolutely magnificent for him to see. And it's going to be magnificent for us to see one day. To think the dazzling splendor of God himself, his Shekinah glory, is at its very core. And his glory now is radiating throughout the city. The glory of his presence now. The presence of God who will be dwelling 
with his bride. Now, remember, there have been others down through history who have witnessed a little glimpse of the glory of God. In Numbers 9.15, we read that on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. And later, when the temple was erected, it was, according to Second Chronicles 5, verse 13 and 14, filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. You see, the glory of the Lord was always representative of the presence of God. And that's what we're going to see in the holy city. Now, the glory of God, this brilliant light of his Shekinah, was something that Paul saw on the road to Damascus. It's what enveloped the shepherds on the, the mountainside there in Bethlehem when the angels came to tell them the good news of Christ's arrival. It was what came forth from the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he peeled back his flesh and his glory, the effulgence of his glory, just shot forth from him. And it will one day also fill the millennial temple, according to Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 5. And here we see that it's now emanating from the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, notice the description that John gives us. The end of verse 11, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, the term brilliance in the original language is foster, and it means that which gives life, that which illuminates, something from which light radiates. Think of a massive light bulb, light bulb, and you'll get the picture, okay? And so we have this brilliance here, and it's like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Eospis in Greek, it's not like the jasper stone that we think of today, but it was a, a crystal clear type of stone like a diamond, and it probably is referring to a diamond. And here we see that because it is a costly stone, it is therefore one without any impurity, without any blemish. It is what we would call a perfect stone. I remember when I was a young man and I went to um, some Jewish diamond cutters downtown Chicago when I was at Moody Bible Institute to purchase an engagement ring for the love of my life. And I was looking for a perfect stone. And they showed me all these perfect stones until finally they found one that I could afford. That's the idea here. So John sees this huge, brilliant, diamond-like city with the glory of God, with the presence of his, of, of his light emanating from within. And you can imagine it now refracting every color of the rainbow in every different direction. When I meditate upon this, I, I find myself being amazed at how God gives us little samples of his glory this side of heaven. I believe he does that in order to whet our appetite for the majesty of his glory that we will one day bask in for eternity. 
And I would, take you, uh, I would encourage you all to, to, to take a little bit of time and be like a little child who is absolutely obsessed with a lightning bug and, and just look at the things that God has given us. To take time and to just marvel at a rainbow. To marvel at sunlight and sunsets and, and the myriad of colors that we see in plants and rivers and oceans and, and on animals and even the light that refracts off of a diamond. However, keep in mind here, it will not be light refracting off and through a diamond, but it will be light that emanates from the diamond, from within. Well, all of these things are but a foretaste of what we will one day see. Physicists tell us that the human eye cannot see light. That light is completely invisible. And all we are able to see is light interacting with tiny particles of matter in the air that reflect light. The colors that we see in light, they tell us, depend upon varying wavelengths in the light spectrum. In fact, visible light occupies only one one thousandth of a percent of the spectrum. And it is only in that minute portion of the light spectrum that we see all of the magnificent colors that we see. Can you imagine when one day we see the full spectrum? Think of the energy spectrum of light. They tell us that it goes from radio, microwave, infrared, and then in the middle, visible light, and then you have ultraviolet, x-ray, and gamma ray. Now, I don't understand all of that. I'm going to take the physicists at their word for it. But again, it's staggering to think of all the beautiful colors that we see in that one one thousandth of one percent of that light spectrum. It, it reminds me that God has only allowed us to see just a little bit of his glory. Just enough to give us a sample, even in this minuscule range of light that we can see. Likewise, God has only revealed a minuscule portion of himself through creation, through his word, through his church. And isn't light, therefore, a fitting metaphor of the Lord Jesus Christ, one that is steeped in Old Testament illusions? We've only been allowed to see a small fraction of the glory of God. What will it be like when we see him face to face? The Apostle Paul speaks a bit about this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, when the perfect comes, in other words, in our glorified eternal state, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Okay? Everything now is just partial, just little glimpses, little samples. The partial will be done away. Later on, verse 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know Fully, just as I also have been fully known. In other words, in this life, even with the word of God, even with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we just see in a, in, in a mirror dimly. It, in our human state, we are incapable of seeing more of the glory of God or in any way understanding it. But one day, when we enter into the presence of his glory and see him face to face, we will behold the full panoply 
of his resplendent glory. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, now we can only know in part, but then we shall know fully just as we have been fully known. And here John sees the ineffable, dazzling light of the divine presence radiating from within the holy of holies, the new Jerusalem, our future home. So here the light of the world, the Lord Jesus, is also the light of heaven. Again, in verse 23 of chapter 21, we read that the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Who was the Lamb? It was the Lord Jesus. This is all in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19, where we read, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for the brightness, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. How sad to know that so many today love darkness rather than light. And because of that rebellious attitude, outer darkness will be their prison for eternity unless they repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Well, first we see the splendor of its appearance. Secondly, we'll look for a moment at the symmetry of its architecture. Now, may I remind you that Scripture teaches that God is a God of order not a God of chaos. We see this in the precision of the erection and the dismantling of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. We see this in the orderly arrangement of all of the furnishings and even the elements within the tabernacle and later on the temple as well. We see this in the order of his commands regarding how he is to be approached, how he is to be worshipped, how he is to be served. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, we read that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. <clears throat> and in verse 40, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. That's why we don't have people running around in here and, and jumping over seats and rolling on the floor and screaming and yelling and all of that type of chaotic stuff. That's not consistent with the God we serve. We are also to have a well-disciplined mind. We are told in 2 Timothy 1.7, one that is self-controlled, one that is properly prioritized and orderly. So all through Scripture we see that God is a God of order, of harmony, of precision, of clarity, of, of purpose, of balance, of harmony, and so forth. And all of these things are obviously reflected here in the symmetry of the architecture of the New Jerusalem. He is not a God of darkness. He is not a God of disorder, of chaos, of confusion, of conflict, of dissonance, and of, of turmoil, all of which characterize our culture today. Don't you see that in the music of our day? And the art, if you want to call it music and art. And even at times you look at some of the hairstyles and some of the attire. It's like the more unkept, the more chaotic, the more slovenly, the better. That's all reflective of a heart that is not orderly 
Now, I want you to notice the symmetry of the architecture here, beginning in verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Now, verse 18 reveals to us that the outer wall is also made of this diamond jasper, as well as the foundation, as we read in verse 19. So bear in mind that none of the materials of the new Jerusalem will in any way inhibit the effulgence of God's glory. The wall around the city will not be for the purpose of defense, because certainly there will be no enemies there. But rather, I believe, and this is pure conjecture on my part, but I believe that the wall basically symbolizes our eternal security in Christ as well as to frame the beauty of the holy city. But then John adds in verse 13, there are three gates on the east, three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Well, this shouldn't surprise us because this is reminiscent of how the 12 tribes were commanded to arrange their camps around the tabernacle during the days of their sojourn. You can read that, for example, in in, uh, Numbers chapter 2. There were to be four camps of three tribes each, stationed on the north, east, south, and west part of the tabernacle, all facing the tabernacle, so that they could see the presence of God emanating from the Holy of Holies and hovering over the tent of meeting. So... The city walls now have these 12 gates, or it could be translated gate towers. Now, before we examine these, let me ask you, what is the purpose of a gate? Well, the purpose of a gate, as anybody knows, is to allow people to go in and out, to allow access. Beloved, this is what we will be doing throughout eternity. I have to pause here for a moment and ask you to abandon those foolish and fleshly notions that would have us believe that somehow we're going to be, can we say it, incarcerated in this city? No, not at all. Not at all. It will somehow descend from heaven and rest upon the newly created earth. It will be our new home and it will be a place from which we will come and go as we serve God throughout eternity. There's an important digression I need to make here for a moment. I will confess that when I was a young man, I didn't look forward to heaven a whole lot because I didn't like harps that much. I wasn't too impressed with church services. I got kind of bored with choirs and I kind of saw heaven as just this long, boring church service. And quite frankly, I didn't like cities and to this day I still don't. But I know God's going to change my heart. This city's going to be very different. And I never liked being around a lot of people. So I was going to have a hard time in heaven. Now, I would never tell anybody this, but I struggled with that. And, you know, frankly, for a young man, streets and gold just didn't impress me much. As I got older, I thought, you know, if you just give me a good horse and a pack string of horses and a remote mountain range, I will be happy. Well... I have to have adventure. I have to have variety. I have to have a challenge. You know what? You probably are the same way. And there was a part of me that said, you know, Lord, I'm sure I don't understand all of this, but I'm not really ready to go yet because after all, I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want to do all of these things in the world. Beloved, that is stupid beyond stupid. 
That just shows you how little you understand and how little I understood of the glories of heaven. As we will discover later, heaven will exceed the joy of anything that you have ever experienced in measures beyond calculation. You know, the same God that wired you the way that you are and that put all of those desires in your heart, He knows exactly how to fulfill those things and bring joy to you. Why do you think God gave us an imagination? I believe He gave us an imagination to whet our appetites for heaven. I believe with all of my heart that heaven will exceed science fiction. I believe that it will surpass Star Wars. I believe that it will outstrip Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Just let your mind go wild and, and there's going to be things that God will have us do that, that are beyond our imagination. Who's to say that our infinite God does not have an infinite number of other galaxies? Perhaps other magnificent plans to glorify himself in unknown solar systems with unknown creatures that we know nothing about that are just awaiting our entrance as servants of the Most High God. Oh, dear Christian, never ever underestimate the creative love of God on our behalf. Did not the psalmist tell us that in thy presence is fullness of joy, in thy right hand are pleasures forever, Psalm 1611. Beloved, never underestimate the infinite reaches of our omnipotent God. Never underestimate the, the limits of our glorified state to fulfill magnificent purposes that infinitely exceed our puny little preferences. What arrogance to assume that we are the only creatures with whom he has chosen to glorify himself. Beloved, heaven will be anything but boring. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 was caught up to the third heaven. The text says that he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Is this not what he had in mind when later on in Romans 8, 18, he wrote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to, worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, with that, we return here to the gates of our heavenly home. Notice again in verse 12, each at each gate, there is stationed an angel as a watchman. Probably reinforcing this idea of our security. Perhaps they will be greeters. As well as servants, just like we would have at upscale hotels downtown Chicago or New York, whatever. I can hear them now as I leave David. Have a great adventure today. I don't know. Maybe he'll say, David, have a great hunt today. I don't know what, what they will say. But they will be there. And notice we have, and names were written on them, referring to these gates, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Now, it's interesting. We know in Ezekiel chapter 48, we learned that the names of the twelve tribes will be individually inscribed upon the gates of the millennial Jerusalem as well. But here we have it in the new Jerusalem of heaven. Now, why would God do this yet again in the new Jerusalem? The answer is quite simple. 
You see, these inscriptions serve as an eternal memorial to the unique role that his covenant people, the national, the people of national Israel, have played throughout human history in his plan of redemption. This is a memorial to them. In fact, jump over to verse 14. There we read that John sees the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see, here now, the church is memorialized. Isn't that fascinating? John MacArthur says, and I quote, Those stones commemorate God's covenant relationship with the church, of which the apostles are the foundation, Ephesians 2.20. At the top of each gate was the name of one of the tribes of Israel. At the bottom of each gate was the name of one of the apostles. Thus, the layout of the city's gates pictures God's favor on all his redeemed people, both those under the old covenant and those under the new covenant. End quote. What stunning symmetry in this architecture, perfectly reflecting the magnificent purposes of God in redemption, all of which he has ordained for his glory. And frankly, I grow weary, though I will never diminish my love for those who insist on spiritualizing the word of God and telling us that there is no distinction between Israel and the church, that God is somehow finished with Israel, and that the church now is the new spiritual Israel, as we have studied at length in the past. There is absolutely no biblical support for that position. And beloved, here again, we see the amazing distinction between the two being permanently inscribed in the New Jerusalem. How can you miss that? Well, there are many more fascinating things the Lord has revealed to us about our heavenly home that we will continue to examine in days to come if the Lord tarries. But may I challenge you, dear Christian, since God has gone to such incomprehensible lengths to glorify himself through us, since he has done these just unimaginable things to prepare for us a place in which we will dwell with him forever, may I challenge you to do whatever is necessary to loosen your grip on this world and become a little bit more consumed with the God who loves you and with the home that awaits you. I was talking with a friend before the church service and you sometimes hear people say, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Well, you've got to be careful with that. I think you need to reverse that. You're no earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. And we need to be heavenly minded, not arrogant and condescending but humbled by the glory of His grace and all that He has in store for those who have placed their faith in Him. My friend, if you're here within the sound of my voice and you don't know Christ, heaven's not going to be your home. Hell will be your home. So I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to examine your heart and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May today be the day that you experience the miracle of the new birth, that God might be glorified in you, and that you might be saved from your sins. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these incredible truths. 
Use them to motivate us to live for your glory, knowing that someday we will bask in it for eternity. And Lord, for those who are lost and dying in their sins, especially those who have deceived themselves into thinking that somehow they know you, but in fact, in their heart, they really don't. They really have no desire to serve you. They really have no desire to study your word and be conformed to your image through it. They have really no desire to glorify God, no prayer life, no secret devotion. Lord, it can be just such a sham, especially in our culture. Oh, God, please bring conviction. Save those who are lost. Glorify yourself in so doing. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.